Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. The UK government has confirmed plans to stop the sale of pure diesel and petrol cars from 2030, bringing the original announcement forward by a decade. But how will the news affect your next car purchase and are we ready as a nation to go electric? Pocket editor Chris Hall joins me to discuss the announcement and what it all means. Meanwhile, I recently chatted to the chief product officer at Waze about the future of their navigation app and just how having thousands of people editing the maps on a daily basis can make the experience better. And Pocket Rick Henderson has been playing with the brand new PlayStation 5 and is here to tell us what it's like to not only use the DualSense controller, but whether you should get the new console at all. But first, back to you, Chris. What's happened? Well, this is interesting because it is a story that has been going on for a while. Uh, we first heard wind of this back earlier in, uh, in in early 2020, and the date has slowly been creeping from 2040 to 2035. And now we have a, a confirmed date for 2030 as the ambition to ban the sale of petrol and diesel cars in the UK. One of the interesting things that was said last time around was that the ban would also include hybrid cars, which confused a lot of people because a lot of people buy a hybrid car, car thinking that it's going to be cleaner than a standard mm. petrol or diesel car. Uh, but the ambitions are to remove these as well because although you can plug those cars in, some of them, there's a lot of people who don't. They just drive their hybrid car as a conventional combustion engine car. They never charge it. And so they never really see the benefits that come from the electrical side of that. So it's an interesting shift, really, a change from the way that people are buying cars at the moment over to what is a minority segment. I think there was only about 6% of cars sold in the past year have been electric. Um, it's certainly growing and lots more electric cars are coming to the market, but it's going to be a wholesale shift for a lot of people. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, um, it's exciting. I've driven an electric car for almost two years now and it's, you know, it's a game changer in, in that sense of things. But do you think from a a nation in the UK, we're, we're going to be ready. I mean, 2030 seems like a long way away, but in reality, in the bigger picture, it's not. It's it's nine years away. Uh, you know, that feels quite close. Well, I think the reassuring thing is, as you know, and I know, and everybody who has driven an electric car knows, that electric cars are really no different to any other type of cars. Once you figure out how you're going to charge it, and for a lot of people that will be at home, then those the, any problems with it sort of start to fall away. The bigger picture is going to be whether we can get the infrastructure in place, because if you suddenly increase the number of electric cars that you have on the roads, there's going to be a lot more demand on the fast charges you have in motorway service stations, for example. And it's not like the petrol stations where somebody will roll up and they'll be there for a couple of minutes and then they'll be leaving. People need to sit on these charges for half an hour to 60 minutes. And that could cause significant delays if there isn't the infrastructure in place. So that's obviously going to be the thing to watch. And that has always been, that's been what people have been saying for years, that we need a lot more investment into the infrastructure to make sure that that's all in place to support the cars. 
Now, you've been driving multiple electric cars over this year and even last year and before. Do we think from the manufacturer side of point, the car makers, are they ready? Well, they've certainly been looking at electric cars for a number of years and the the diversity in models over the past two years has is is really apparent. There are so many more options than there were just a few years ago. My concern is whether they're going to meet the volume for new car sales once you take out some of the big fleets that are buying up sort of uh, petrol and diesel cars at the moment and put that demand in for only electric cars. My worry is that some of them will not have been able to scale fast enough. I think a lot of this is going to be dependent on the big manufacturers working really hard. Companies like VW are going to have to scale up incredibly quickly to get the volume of those cars on the road. But the other side of this is that it's a ban on new car sales. And I mm. suspect that there will be a lot of people who hang on to their petrol diesel cars. I think the secondhand market in petrol and diesel cars uh, will be very, very vibrant. Obviously, there will be less new cars coming into the market, but there'll be a lot of people who probably want to go out and buy a cheap diesel for the range uh, and just to just to keep that going for as long as they possibly can. So although there is that ban on new car sales by 2030, I think it's actually going to be quite a long time before everybody is buying electric cars. Yeah, that was going to be my final question, really, is that sense of, as I say, this is new cars for 2030. So if you've got a current petrol or diesel car now, don't panic. It's not going to suddenly you have to trash it or hand it in in, in nine years time. And And for a lot of people who kind of change their cars three you know every three years that's still three more cycles of of what you're going to get before you're forced onto electric you know whether you like it or not do you how long do you think it's do we have an idea of how long it will take for all cars you know new cars will be electric but how long that will fade that phase will take before we kind of you know diesel is one of those bygone things of yesteryear like an antique you know turning up on antiques roadshow Oh, that's uh, that's almost an imp- impossible question to answer at this point in time. Uh, I suspect that many people will will just keep buying secondhand cars whilst they are there until they get too expensive because the stock dwindles, and then they'll be forced to forced to switch over. There is one little detail that has popped up in the latest announcement um, that I read in the Prime Minister's outline of his ten point plan for his green mm. green. Uh, revolution and that is that longer range uh some longer range plug-in hybrids are going to be permitted until 2035 i believe it is uh, and this has been something that's been talked about for quite a long time because a lot of plug-in hybrids will only give you about 30 miles electric range and people say well what's the point you can't really go very far with that yeah. whether that will encourage manufacturers to to try and find a balance with a smaller engine and a larger battery to get plug-in hybrids to to cover greater distances maybe sort of 50 maybe 100 miles i don't know i mean for car manufacturers trying to sell into the uk they are obviously now going to be looking at this ban coming along and thinking there is no point in developing cars for this market because that hard deadline is going to be there Still to come, Rick gives us his verdict on the Sony PlayStation 5. But another game that I found brilliant with these controllers was uh, Miles Morales, which I've already mentioned. Because while you're swinging around the city as Spider-Man, the actual adaptive triggers have different levels of pressure to give you a sort of like a feel of swinging from web to web. 
Waze, the quirky driving app that is now owned by Google, takes a different approach to helping you get from A to Z. Leveraging the power of the community, the app not only offers real-time traffic details to its drivers, but also works to deliver the best directions possible because of the inside knowledge of its users, who are always allowed to constantly have input into the mapping data. And Rafa Cohen, the company's chief product officer, is the man charged with making that only all work, but where to go next? I started by asking him to describe how he sees Waze and how it differs from other navigation apps. So Waze, uh, simply put, is the world's largest crowdsourced uh, navigation platform. It's built and maintained by 50,000 volunteer community members uh, each month. So it is a GPS navigation app in its purest form. Uh, but the fact that it is maintained by, uh, um, by the power of the crowd and, and the wisdom of the crowd make it, makes it very unique in the sense that data on the map is always relevant, fresh, and uh, uh, feels very local. Um, so I always uh, com come back to the uh, to the same example when Google uh, uh, first started to interview users in Brazil, for instance, asking them why do you keep using Waze and not uh, um, uh, switching to other navigation app. The uh, uh, answer is often because uh, Waze is a Brazilian app. So of course, it's not a Brazilian app uh, per se, mm. but the, the data is uh, so relevant to the people who actually live there because it's, it is crowdsourced by the co local community. It feels um, hyper-local and feels, in fact, that uh, to Brazilians that it is a Brazilian app, but it also feels uh, for the French that it is, it is a French app. And same for in Indonesia and in Costa Rica. And that's, I think, what makes the, 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 the magic of, of Waze and makes it so useful to, to so many people. So with that, you must have so much data piling in constantly from people not only sort of suggesting different things, but trying to change the maps and all that stuff. How, how do you go about processing all of that, that information at the same time? And making sure that it's credible we do so we, we have kind of the same challenges that uh, they have in uh, wikipedia i guess uh, meaning that the map and the data is uh, built and sourced uh, by a very large community and we have somehow uh, to manage this community and to give uh, different levels of access to uh, different contributors based on the experience and how much they contributed to, uh, to the map uh, and, and to the community in the past. So this is how we, it works. You start small by being able to uh, editing small things in the, uh, in, in the map. If, you, um, if the data that you have to, to add to the map is not relevant or is just uh, plain wrong, it is uh, quickly corrected by more experienced members of the community. And the more relevant data you add, the uh, higher you get in, in the edit, editing levels and in permissions, and the more uh, power you have, in a sense, uh, in the in the data that we uh, that, that you can contrib contribute to the community. And so, do you have that in each territory? You have sort of you know super power users that just spend most of their spare time just correcting changes that other people have, have perhaps made either by mistake or nefarious or just you know, it, it's wrong. Exactly. We have thousands of editors who spend hours every day uh, building and maintaining uh, the map. Uh, they're volunteers. Uh, and we have tens of thousands of, uh, of uh, uh, smaller contributors uh, who um, uh, log into the map and, and you know, uh, just add something small, a new building or a new uh, road in their neighborhood um, uh, when, uh, when something relevant uh, uh, comes up. Now, you've been at Waze for a few years now. Um, what's been the best feature you've seen introduced since you've been on the team? 
Oh, there are so many. Uh, my, my, my personal favorite is, is Carpool. So Carpool is not available yet in the uh, UK. I hope we'll be able to uh, launch uh, in Europe uh, uh, next year and it will come to, uh, uh, to the UK. Um, but Carpool uh, is, um, I think, the long-term vision of uh, what Waze is about. Waze is about the community and it is about um, making uh, commutes more fun, more safe, uh, more cheap and uh, contributing to eliminating traffic uh, altogether uh, using the power of the community. So it is basically uh, a platform matching uh, drivers and riders uh, so they can uh, drive together from the same origin to the same destination. Uh, it's not aimed at professional drivers. That's not the goal. The goal is people who are driving anyway. Uh, hence, it's not contributing to uh, traffic or to pollution. It's not adding cars on the road. Uh, on the opposite, when we can um, uh, convince uh, drivers to leave their car at home, it's contributing to taking uh, cars off the road. Uh, I'm. It's personally to me a, a childhood dream. Uh, so this is why it's uh, it's it's uh, by far my my, my favorite feature. Uh, but we've launched really so many. Um, uh, incredibly uh, impactful features in the in the last four years that uh, it's very hard to uh, to pick a very specific one. So Which one's your started. favorite child? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And with with the with obviously the smooth always comes the rough. What what do you think that in general, sat, you know, navigation apps just aren't getting right at the moment? So I think that. Um, we all need to um, choose better what is the uh, use case that we want to target and really uh, be focusing on, on, on this, uh, on this um, use case. So I know, for instance, that there are a few mental models that users can have when they come to their navigation app. They could be uh, in a discovery mode, meaning that they know that they are looking for a restaurant or a hospital, but they don't really know which one. Or they could know what is the destination they uh, want to uh, get to uh, and uh, just be informed of uh, what is the best way to get there and being informed of what's happening on the way there. So I think like those two mental models of discovery and navigation, uh, it's very difficult to um, cover them perfectly and to really nail them with the same product. I think this is also the basis of, uh, of Google's strategy. Why, why do they do... Uh, they own uh, both Maps, Google Maps, and uh, and Waze. I think like the the mindset of the users who come to Google Maps and and Waze is very different in that sense. Of usually Waze users know where they want to get to, they just don't know how, and Google Maps users just don't know yet where they want to get to. So I think that's the the the, the basic difference. And often we see navigation apps that they are trying to do both, and uh, they come. Um, uh, uh, being suboptimal on, the, on on both accounts, and I suppose that was one of the questions because for many people that might not realise that Waze is owned by Google and Google obviously have Google Maps, it, it's strange that to some people that those two two apps that you know two services that presumably on the surface offer the same thing are very different you know are kept separate. Do you think that you've mentioned this previously as we've been talking this idea of, of specific use cases for specific navigational apps do you think do you think that's the better way of doing it so you have a ways because it's community-based you have google because it's uh you know finding things you have a, a specific pedestrian app or you have a specific you know like city mapper or or sort of you know for bus routes or things like that do you, do you think that's where we'll we're fractioning to rather than having a one size fits all 
I think that um, one size fits all has a cost in terms of the depth of the experience that you can have each uh, in the, each one of the uh, sub parts of the uh, uh, of the service. Uh, I do think that driving is a whole world that is so vast and so deep uh, that it does uh, require a dedicated app. Mo this is at least what most drivers uh, tell us. Uh, I do think that the what driving means will expand in the future, meaning that uh, you know that in the UK, for instance, you're not able to uh, uh, drive into central London, central, right? So, so you you may have when you want to get from point A to point B, if that's point B is in central London, you may have to park somewhere and then you know cover the last leg with either public mm. transit or with walking. So the meaning of what what is driving uh, is shifting. Um, but I think like the best answer to that is really the fact that because um, uh, Waze is crowdsourced and, 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 and fueled and powered by the community. It is the only platform today that uh, makes possible services like Carpool. And Carpool really is a big bet uh, for Waze. And um, it kind of embodies the vision uh, of Waze as a, as a tool for eliminating traffic. I think that Google Maps has... Um, um, different um, goals and a different mission and a different vision, and it's more around uh, you know Google's mission, which is um, uh, organizing the world's information and making it uh, universally accessible. I think this is what uh, Google Maps is about. Waze is different is is uh, inherently different in that aspect. We are about eliminating traffic. And do you think as as, as you know devices get more and more advanced? you know and thinking along along the routes here now of, of cars and you know we're talking about assisted driving and and then eventually the you know probably the the holy grail of it all you know self-driving cars do you think we'd need do you think there'll still be a need for navigation apps in the future do you think they've, they've got you know that once we crack the self-driving car that you think well i'll just let the car do do everything for me i won't need to have that app on my phone yeah, so, so you certainly won't be needing a routing app, a navigation app. I do think that, uh, A, it will take time. Let's align expectations. Uh, but like the, the question is, is very valid regardless. I think um, even when we have uh, autonomous vehicles, I think that the fact that those vehicles need to be shared uh, is uh, something that is not going away. If we want to eliminate traffic, the fact that the vehicles are autonomous or the fact that they are uh, electrical uh, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, uh, eliminate traffic, right? So really sharing, shared mobility is the name of the game for Waze. So in that aspect, it doesn't change really anything, the fact that a, a, a robot or a human is, is driving the car. Uh, but I, I must say that I do think that even when... Um, uh, users are not driving the car by themselves. They will want to be informed about why the car is making the decision uh, it makes, uh, what's expecting them uh, in terms of traffic. They do want to know, and we, we see that all the time. Uh, just you know, uh, consider that uh, a very large portion of our users know the way. Uh, they still use ways. Even if something is happening on the road, they are not going to reroute because of ways tells them, but they still uh, put ways on because they want to know what's expecting them in terms of ETA, in traffic, uh, for how long they're going to be in traffic. All those things reduce stress, and it's also part of our mm. formation. So even when the cars uh, are autonomous, and even if we're uh, ignoring the share, uh, shared mobility part, I do th think that there will be value in people uh, using a navigation app in a um, in, in an autonomous vehicle. Cool. And then I suppose the final question, rather more rather than the far future, what from a near future perspective, what can we expect from Waze on that front? 
So in the near future, our uh, basic product strategy is based uh, on shifting the user mindset to planning, from navi real-time navigation to planning. When we talk about planning, we don't uh, necessarily mean something that's you know uh, planning your uh, 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 drive to the supermarket in a week. Uh, uh, a week ahead. That's not that's not the thing. But even like very short-term planning, just take a few seconds to uh, prepare for your next drive. Whether this drive is going to happen in five seconds or in five weeks, right? The fact that you're preparing and actually uh, considering alternatives, maybe leaving later, uh, maybe uh, taking a different route that the, the route you, you're used uh, uh, to, or maybe uh, d taking a different uh, route and picking up uh, someone on, on the route. All those decisions that you need to make uh, before you drive, they can have a tremendous impact on the way uh, uh, our users uh, uh, drive and commute. And that's an opportunity for ways to give them tremendous value. If Ultimately, if you use Waze only when you've started driving and when you're starting your, your, your car, we can tell you in uh, you know on um, how to save four minutes by you know taking a different route than the one you're used to because there is some uh, kind of accident on the uh, on the road or something. But if we can uh, uh, reach out to our users a few minutes before they drive, then we can even tell them you know maybe wait 15 minutes because there is an accident, have coffee at your house, and then you can save 10 minutes or 15 minutes on the road. Or if, you pick up some, if you're willing to pick up someone on, on your route, then maybe you can take the HOV lane, the carpool lane, and saving 20 or 25 minutes on your route. So all these decisions that happen a few minutes before the, 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 the drive, this is what we are going to try to educate, in a sense, our users to, um, uh, to behave. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's our uh, strategy for giving them um, 10x value compared to what they're getting from any navigation app today. The PlayStation 5 is now on sale in the UK and the US, but what's it actually like to play? Pocketlint's Rick Henderson has been doing just that for the last couple of weeks, racing and fighting his way through a number of games to tell us what it's like as a console, what we should look out for, and just how it compares to the Xbox Series X. So Rick, is it any good? Uh, yes, very. Um... There's a number of key factors about it. First, we'll touch on the fact that uh, it's a massive shock whenever anyone gets one out of the box. It is huge. I mean, if you think about um, what you've seen so far, if you've seen anything online about the PlayStation 5, you can see that it's quite a tall machine. It's kind of even taller than you expect. It's a very big machine. But that means... Uh, that has a, a direct benefit in the fact that the fan is massive inside between the two faceplates. And that essentially means that it runs silently and doesn't overheat. And this is huge for a new generation of gaming because the mm. last generation was horrible for overheating and fan noise. Yeah, I mean, the PS4 was really noisy. So even though it's a bigger machine, it just means it's cooler and therefore it doesn't get so noisy. Exactly. So while you may struggle to fit one into an AV cabinet or, mm. or have um, casting eyes by the rest of the family for having to leave it out somewhere, it actually, there is a, a direct benefit to that. Um, and you consider how much more powerful the PS5 is in comparison to, say, a PlayStation 4. And you can tell that, all that heat has to go somewhere. What I found really amazing is running it for hours on end and putting my hand around the back of it because it has all these sort of like ports that fan the um, the hot air to the to the rear of the device. Is it doesn't even get that hot? 
I was really surprised by that. That was that was one of my big takeaways from the PlayStation Five. I mean, cool. and that's irrespective of actually turning it on because that in itself is a fantastic experience. So you turn it on, you start playing. What's the experience like? Is the games loaded instantly? Is the promise of all these things that next generation would you know be as good as streaming in terms of access to games, or is it still download this twenty eight gig update and wait three hours and come back tomorrow? Um, you still it still takes a while to download something, especially if you've got the digital edition. You don't have the um, the benefit of putting in a disc. Um, it will take roughly the same time to download a game as depending on your broadband speed. Right. Um, but and the big but is that loading them is a lot quicker. Oh, when good. you start any game, any PlayStation Five game, or any game that's um, actually stored on the internal storage device, the the um, solid state drive then you will actually find that games take seconds to load, not minutes, which is a big, big change. And the biggest change I found was actually in mid-game. There are a lot of games, like there are so many open-world games, for example, these days, where you um, travel from one bit to another, or, or when you start the game, it takes an awful long time to load up that massive expansive open world setting well for example miles morales this new spider-man game you um you go on a fast travel like three seconds later the game is loaded you're already in new york city yeah uh, it's, it's phenomenal that's the, 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 there are several things about playstation 5 that actually take your breath away that's one of them the other one for me is the dual sense controller okay and how's that to use Right. It looks like an Xbox One controller, but it isn't really like an Xbox One controller. In fact, it's not like any other controller I've ever used. It's um, It's got a, a fairly ergonomic feel to it. But what actually um, makes it extra special is it has two technologies that are truly brilliant. One's called haptic feedback. And that it, rather than having um, force feed, uh, a, a sort of like a rumble pack inside yeah. the controllers, which they've had for years now, yeah, yeah, it yeah. has it has lots of different haptic areas, sort of like actuators around the controller. So, um, and they can kick off at any point, depending on what you're doing. To describe it, because it's hard to do it without actually feeling it, to describe it, say, for example, you're playing a driving game like Dirt 5, Mm-hmm. If you're driving over ice, it feels totally different to if you're driving over gravel. Cool. Um, and and different, like if if you're only driving a bit over it, you might only get a little bit of force, a, a bit of haptic feedback in one side of the pad. It's really, really clever. It's hard to describe, but very, very clever. The other thing is adaptive triggers. Now, these are even more clever still. Adaptive triggers. Now, Xbox has for quite some time allowed you to apply different levels of pressure to speed up, for example, in a driving game or something. But this actually feeds back. It has force feedback in each trigger, and the developer can decide how much they want to utilize that in their game. So what they can do is they can change different levels of pressure. So you have to squeeze harder to do certain functions. A good example is if you're drawing a bow and arrow, as you're pulling the bow back it gets harder and harder to squeeze the trigger nice it's really clever i mean genuinely so who's, clever. 
who's using this really well? Which developer? Which games can you really, if you want to show off? The t- you, the t- you've got one coming. <laughs> like, if you want to show off, what what game are you going to get to show these well, these things? Funny enough, the first game that you absolutely must load is Astro's Playroom, which is absolutely free on the PlayStation Five, and it's designed entirely to show off these new features and functions. Right. So you get to actually do things like draw a bow um, and uh, and even blow into your controller because it's now got a microphone and all the sort of things that you'd imagine Nintendo to do. I was going to say, it sounds very Wii, Wii Switch, Wii U kind of, yeah. you know, Wii Play kind of, Wii Sports kind of like dimension here. Very much so, very much so. In fact, I think I described it in my review as a Joy-Con in PlayStation controller form. <laughs> right. It really has that kind of aesthetic, that kind of feel to it. Um, but the so that's a free game, and that's that's you know you can't say better than that. But another game that I found brilliant with these controllers was uh, Miles Morales, which I've already mentioned. Because while you're swinging around the city as Spider Man, the actual adaptive triggers have different levels of pressure to give you a sort of like a feel of swinging from web to web. Right. It really it makes that game in even more immersive than it already is and and believe you me it's pretty immersive as it is so the final question i have for you is if you've got the choice you've got 449 pounds in the uk i'm sure it's it's about the same in dollars isn't it if you've got that much money to burn burning a hole in your pocket do you go and buy a playstation 5 or do you buy an xbox series x it's a really tough question to answer because i think both have such equal merits that it really depends on the type of person rather than the type of machine. Um, the Xbox Series X is a very good all-round machine, does so much and has Game Pass. So instantly you have access, if you subscribe, instantly access to over 300 games. Whereas the PlayStation 5 has that initial wow factor. It feels genuinely next-generation stuff. So um, if you're a true hardcore gamer, the PlayStation 5 every time, in my opinion, if you want something a bit more for the family and a bit more um, that, that you can just set up and instantly get into hundreds of games, have lots for everybody to do on Christmas morning, then probably the Xbox. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, pip pip. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 